How's everybody doing? All right, good. You know, uh, my mom and sister and little niece are here today. Uh, my dad and brother-in-law couldn't make it down. But um, since my sister was here, I had searched high and low for that passage in the Scriptures that talked about sisters submitting to their brothers. But I could not find it, you know, for the life of me. So we're going to have to do something else. We're going to be in Philippians today. And, in fact, we're going to be going through the book of Philippians for the rest of the summer. And I chose Philippians because I believe there's some good themes and some good teaching in this book by Paul that is really going to help you and I as we, as we go through the, this phase in our church. I think it's really going to be helpful for all of us. So if you want, you can turn to Philippians 1 as we get started here. But first, I want to talk about trophies. I want to talk about awards. And behind me, you're going to see some trophies up on the screen. Uh, on the far left, you're going to see the World Cup of Soccer trophy. In the middle, the glorious trophy of them all, the World Series trophy. And on the right-hand side, the Super Bowl trophy. And as you and I know, professional athletes compete to win the trophy of their respective sport. And even as I'm speaking, in about 20 more minutes or so, that trophy on the left is uh, going to be up for grabs. Italy versus France in the World Cup of Soccer. Um, I, I say Italy's going to take this one. We'll see if my prediction's correct. And uh, all the guys in the back with those nifty cell phones, you better not look at the score and tell me what's going on. I don't want to hear anybody yelling, Goal! I got it on record, just like Scott Eichler back at home. In any event, the trophies behind me uh, represent the highest award. The highest award in their respective sports. And we can identify, we might have received awards in grammar school or in high school, maybe competing in athletics or doing something well in the classroom. But you know, there was one award that everybody was quite aware of. There was one award that was, well, kind of like getting second fiddle in the orchestra. It was the Participation Award. Yes, the Participation Award. And you know, I found a Participation Award just the other day. I was searching in Dan Robb's office, our youth pastor, and he had a Participation Award. It's the Indiana Quilting and Scrapbooking Contest. Dan, where are you? Are you around here? I don't even know. Oh, he, he, he didn't make it in. Oh, that's too bad. We'll bring it back up when he shows up. Anyhow, we laugh at the Participation Award sometimes. We think, well... Maybe that award is not quite the most prestigious. But let me tell you this. The Participation Award, according to the Apostle Paul, was one of the highest awards that a church could receive. The Participation Award meant that you were participating in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, for the Apostle Paul, was the highest honor a church could receive. And that's what we're going to see in Philippians 1 today. We're going to see Paul talking about the Philippians' participation and how he is commending them for what they have done. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1, go down to verse 11. The handout that has been provided, if that's helpful, go ahead and follow it. If not, that's okay. Philippians 1, 1 to 11. Reads this. Paul and Timothy bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would still our hearts, still our minds, that we would now focus attention on the task that is before us, the task of interpreting your word, of extracting its meaning, and of plugging it back into our hearts that we might live according to it. I pray, Lord, that this would be a very fruitful study for us as we learn about what Paul is saying here in Philippians 1. May your spirit guide us. In Christ's name, amen. But before digging into this letter, I, I want to give you a little bit of a background of Philippi. If we're going to be going into uh, the through the entire book, we need to know what is this book about? What is this city about, the city of Philippi? So I want to give you a brief history, and you can follow along up on the screen. Philippi started in about the 5th or 4th century B.C. It was a Thracian village. The Thracians were kind of... An significant people group. Uh, they kind of blended in with the Greeks a little bit later on. And in 361 B.C., it was settled by the Greeks officially. By 356, the city of Philippi was renamed Philippi by King Philip II of Macedon. Anybody know uh, who his son was? Alexander the Great. And it was utilized for gold mining. In 167 B.C., the Romans assumed power. And they began to utilize Philippi as a central stopping point on the Via Ignatia, which was the Ignatian Way. This was a trading road between Byzantium and Rome. We've got a map up there for you on the next slide. If you'll notice, Philippi is smack dab in the middle, a very strategic city on this, on this old ancient highway, uh, trading road. All on, uh, to the east, you see Byzantium. You don't see Rome to the west because the, I didn't have enough room, but basically the Romans were master road builders. And they used this road to bring supplies in, back into Italy. In Between 42 and 27 B.C., scholars aren't quite sure when, Philippi received the Ius Italicum, which is the law of Italy. This was a status granted to Roman colonies that were prosperous. And basically, it gave all the rights of Rome to that city. The citizens of Philippi became citizens of Rome. They were able to buy and sell property. 
they were able to do the kinds of things that most prominent citizens of the world could do. Thus, it was a very strategic city for Paul to evangelize because the people were very influential. Following the time of Christ in 50 AD, Philippi, uh, excuse me, Paul visited Philippi and established the Philippian church on his second missionary journey. And we have another map up there to see uh, Paul's journey. Again, this is not all of it. It started in Jerusalem. He went up through Damascus, uh, which you can't see, then to Tarsus, and then all the way up. Philippi is in the very top left, if you can see that up there. It's a little small. Paul was making a humongous journey. I mean, on foot, too. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of miles. This was no small task that Paul was doing. And this was the first time he encountered the Philippians in Acts chapter 16. You can read about it. That was in A.D. 50. Six years later, after Paul had started that church in A.D. 56, he returned to the city and participated in the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. And that, what does that tell us? That tells us that the Philippian church was growing was flourishing. Paul stopped there because he knew that there was a substantial amount of believers there who he could celebrate with, this particular uh, Jewish feast that had now had new Christian significance. So the church was flourishing. And finally, in in A.D. 60, Paul writes his letter to the Philippians while he was on arrest in Rome. Paul had been arrested two years earlier. He was in a city called Caesarea, on the coast of the Mediterranean in Israel. For two years he was there. And then they transferred him to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. And so in AD 60, when he was on house arrest in Rome, Paul began writing some of his prison epistles, as you and I know. Uh, Among them, Ephesians and Colossians, I believe. And Philippians was written about that time. And And he gave the letter over to what we believe is a man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus went back to his church in Philippi and gave them the letter to the Philippians. So that is the history of this book. I hope that was helpful as you settle into reading it and understanding it a little bit more. Now let's go to verse 1. Verse 1 reads this. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Here we have uh, the author and the recipients. Paul is the author. He also indicates Timothy's with him, but Timothy is not a co-author because later on in the letter, Paul will be using I and me and my. He's not using we. So we know that Paul was the primary author, the author of the book to the Philippians. But he he notes that Paul and Timothy are bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, this is unique. Usually, in fact, every time Paul refers to Timothy, he says he's a minister, he's a brother, or he's a son. This is the first time in all of the New Testament and the only time, I believe, that he refers to Timothy as a bondservant, which means slave, slave of Christ. And uh, we, we can speculate that he's doing this to elevate Timothy's status in the eyes of the Philippians. He's going to say later on in chapter 3, I'm going to send Timothy to you in the future, Philippians, and I want you to recognize that this man carries the same status as I carry. He is a bondservant like I am a bondservant. He is a slave of Christ like I am a slave of Christ. Who are the recipients? Of course, the saints at Philippi. He says, including the overseers and the deacons. Overseers simply meant bishop or elder. They were the shepherds of the church, much like our elders are today. 
The deacons would be more along the lines of the, the helpers, the ministers, uh, the, the ones that took care of some of the material needs. Although, as an interesting kind of aside, you know that Paul never, I, I don't believe he never, he ever refers to himself as an overseer. He always refers to himself as a diakonos or a deacon. So even the Apostle Paul said, hey, I'm a minister, I'm a deacon. I don't even consider myself an overseer. He is a, he is a helper in the gospel. And that should uh, spur us on to, to considering serving and helping ministries. Even the Apostle Paul was focused on that more than anything else. Verse 2. Let's get to verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great, great introduction. And because if you notice the word grace in yellow there, the next slide will show you that this word grace was very similar to the word for greetings in Greek. Uh, grace was uh, charis, and greetings was karain. And so Paul here is using a play on words. He's saying, I'm not writing to you from a secular standpoint. I'm not writing a secular letter, much like I might write to my you know, business partner or whatnot. I'm writing to believers. And I'm not going to say greetings to you, much like we might say hello. I'm going to say grace to you. Grace to you. In Jesus Christ, you've received grace. And I want that to be at the forefront of my letter to you. So it's just kind of an interesting tidbit how Paul is just subtly expressing warmth and love and care for the Philippian church. He's saying grace to you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're getting ready to approach verse 3, which is uh, a critical section in this text. It, it basically begins what Paul is, is go, going to be saying to the Philippians. He's going to begin with the idea of uh, that he's been thinking about them, that he has been constantly having the Philippian church on his mind. But look what he says in verse 3. He says, I thank my God every, upon every remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, making a request for you all with joy. Why? For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul thanks God every time he considers the church at Philippi. He's been thinking about them. And he's been praying for them. Two times in this uh, section we see the word prayer. In verse 4 you see it as prayer. At the end of verse 4 you see it as request. That's actually the same Greek word. He's saying, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. I've been interceding on behalf of you. But he doesn't say what the prayer is quite yet. We're going to get to that in verse 9. So he's got to, you've got to wait for what he's been praying for them. And he says, I've been doing this with joy. Now joy, as many of you who are students of the Word will know in Philippians, joy is a central concept in the letter to the Philippians. It's used 14 times in this epistle. And Paul uses it again and again and again. And we're going to define it a little bit later on. There's some, there's some more strategic passages later on to see where joy comes into play. But note now that Paul is introducing the concept of joy. And he explains to them, why am I thinking about you? Why am I praying for you? Look at verse 5. He says, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Your fellowship 
in the gospel from the first day until now. That word in yellow, excuse me, is koinonia, fellowship, used 13 times by Paul in the New Testament. And this word fellowship uh, carries a range of meaning. Uh, we can look at fellowship as participation. We can look at it as sharing. We can look at it as a close relationship. And we can also look at it as uh, financial giving, like sharing with one another with, with respect to finances. Paul uses the term koinonia and its derivatives, the other words that are similar to it, uh, about one-third of the time to refer to financial sharing. Financial sharing. And I believe, this is where we're going to get to the crux of the interpretation of this text. I believe that's what Paul has in mind here. And we're going to substantiate that a little bit. We're going to find out, well, what would, how do you know that this means finances? How do you know that this means a financial gift? Let me say this. It's likely that Paul had in mind the financial component of fellowship in this particular context. Why? Because in the letter to the Philippians, in this first introduction to the Philippians, Paul begins the letter and ends the letter with the same kind of language. Take note at, the, uh, at, at this next component here. Philippians 4, 15 to 16. Here's at the end of the letter. Here's what it says. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, that is the region of Philippi, no church, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Now look up in yellow. See the words fellowship and shared? Fellowship is the Greek word koinonia in the top. In the bottom section, it's the Greek verb koinoneo, shared. Same concepts. Look at the words in green. In green, you see shared in the gospel. On the top section, you see fellowship in the gospel. Same word for gospel. And then you see in the first section in Philippians 1, from the first day you did this. And in Philippians 4, he says, from the beginning you did this. What is Paul doing? He's starting to make it very clear why he's writing to the Philippians. He's saying, you have given. You have partnered with me in gospel efforts. And how have you partnered with me? Among other things, yes, you prayed and you've been participating in many ways, but primarily, you've given. You've given, you've given. You've financially partnered with me. And I'm going to say it again at the end of my letter. You have financially participated, koinonia, in the gospel ministry. This is what Paul is stating in verse 5. This is the kind of fellowship that he is speaking of, that they have partnered in financially supporting the gospel ministry. And he says, you've done this from the first day until now, or from the beginning until now. And this is a very unusual concept because, as you know, Paul was always very shy about asking for funds. In fact, he would take it upon himself again and again to say that, hey, I'm not going to ask for funds because I want the gospel to be what it is. Free. I want the gospel to be what it is. Free. But the Philippian church knew that their gifts, their financial gifts, could assist Paul all the more. And so they basically disregarded some of his admonitions earlier to other churches. And they said, we don't care if you don't want this money. We're giving it to you because we know it's going for a good cause. 
And Paul says, thank you. Thank you for this gift. Verse 6. Verse 6. He says, I, I want to thank my God upon every remembrance of you, verse 3, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. Why? For your fellowship, your financial partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who, be, who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Anybody have this on a bookmark or a poster at home? Very famous verse, right? And it's actually a verse where customarily you and I, just from a casual reading, we might look at this verse and say, wow, that's a, that's a great promise. God is saying here that... Um, that our spiritual blessing, the salvation blessing, our eternal salvation is secure until the very last day. God will complete it. He will make sure that we are eternally secure. Right? Isn't that the traditional understanding? Uh, the next component there. This verse is very often used to uh, prove. Next slide. There we go. Very often quoted to prove that God will give the believer eternal security until the return of Jesus. Right? I think that that's been a, a very popular conception of this verse. Um, unfortunately, that is taking the verse right out of where it's at. It's taking it right out of context. And in fact, this verse, in my opinion, and based on context, and we're going to see a little bit more as to why this is so, this verse actually has nothing to do with our eternal salvation. Although our eternal salvation is secure in Christ, that is a, God, that is a biblical truth, that once we believe in Christ... You and I are eternally secure in Christ. We can hold on to that. But Philippians 1.6 doesn't teach that. Philippians 1.6 teaches something drastically different. And it's entirely based on what we saw in verse 5. Let's take a look. Why is the interpretation of Philippians 1.6 that we see on the screen behind us incorrect? Well, in light of verse 5, in light of verse 5, it appears much easier to understand verse 6 as a continuation of Paul's thought process and praise for the Philippians' financial partnership in the gospel. It's much more reasonable to assume that. Paul is expressing confidence that God, who has begun a good work, that is, God who has initiated this work of financial partnership among the Philippian Christians, in the gospel ministry. God who has initiated that work will carry it on to completion and will see to it that that work will not be in vain. You say, well, maybe, Neil. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not quite sure about that interpretation. That's okay. Because we've got a, a section of Scripture here to back up this kind of interpretation. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8. And now I've taken chunks from verses 1 to 14, and I, I hate to split it up. It's such a large section. But I've pr tried it my absolute best to preserve the context and give you an idea of where we're going here, where, where Paul is going here. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 14. Notice, notice the similarities. Paul says this to the church at Corinth. We make known to you 
the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Okay, I submit to you that that's God-initiated giving. God-initiated giving. Keep Follow along. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded, abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the koinonia fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Verse 6, So we urge Titus, Paul says, that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, see that you abound in this grace also, the grace of financial partnership, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, meaning the lack in Jerusalem, they were giving to the poor in Jerusalem, and that their abundance may also supply your lack. That the church at Jerusalem, who has given you the gospel, may supply what you need spiritually. Paul's telling the church at Corinth, hey, give to them materially because they've given to you spiritually. And he's using the same language here. In Philippians 1, we see that God is initiating this gift. In 2 Corinthians 8, we see that Titus is collecting this gift. Now, these were, at the time, these were two separate gifts. But these are two occasions in which Paul is using the same language, begun, completed, grace, the good work, the same kind of language to help us interpret this verse and see that, wait a minute, he's still talking about finances here. He's still talking about giving. That is the primary emphasis of Philippians 1, verses 5 and 6. So in returning to verse 6, what do we see here? We now see that Paul is telling the church, note this well, Paul is telling the church that God has initiated a good work that is financially partnering in the gospel by means of the Philippian church. God initiated and it will be completed. Now, what does it mean that it will be completed? Completed. Well, there's two options here. On the one hand, and I, I kind of lean toward one. I, I'm, I'm not utterly convinced. I lean toward one, and I'll give you my opinion on the matter. But what does it mean that he will complete this? Number one option is that God will see to it that the Philippian church continues to give, that they will continue to be prompted by this divine initiative to give. That option I'm not as keen on, although some scholars hold to that. The second option is, is that God will take this gift, this God-initiated financial gift for the gospel work, and he will see to it that this gift will, will be utterly effective, will not return void, will go out and will accomplish its purpose until the day of Christ Jesus, because you and I know that for every dollar that we give to the gospel, that dollar is multiplied again and again and again, and you and I have no idea what a small token that we give, how that multiplies, how many others are saved or come to a greater knowledge of Christ as a result of our gifts. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here. He's saying, Philippians, be encouraged. Your gift will be completed. It will carry on in its effectiveness until the day of Christ. 
Okay, that was tough. That was a tough section of scripture to interpret. And I imagine some of you probably still have questions about it. If you do, that's okay. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'm going to move on. I hope I've substantiated this well enough for you to just swallow and to think about. Um, but again, as, as the Bereans, we need, we need to all be searching the word, carefully looking at it ourselves and making sure that what is being taught is indeed the word of God. So uh, consider that as we, as we look at if we just looked at verses 5 and 6, and I'd love to interact with you after the service on that interpretation. Verse 7, verse 7, here we go, moving on. Paul says this, he says, just as it is right, he's saying it is only proper, it is only proper, it is only right for me to think this of you all. It's only proper for my thoughts and feelings, as I've described in verses 3 to 6, It's only right that I think this way of you. Why? He says, because I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. Um, Again, just just to uh, open up the the range of meaning here, this can actually be translated, you have me in in your heart. Um, The Greek allows for both. There's, There's no pronoun, personal pronoun modifying heart. So it could be, I have you in my heart, or you have me in your heart. And I say, hey, you know what, Paul's... Constantly expressing mutual love and concern that uh, I'm, not, I'm not so concerned about this interpretation. I tend to lead toward uh, the, the latter, that, that they have Paul in their hearts. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, we share together a common bond, a common love, a common association in the gospel ministry. It is right for me to think this way of you because I have you in my heart. You have me in your heart. And then he says this, and in, inasmuch as both in my chains, he's on arrest, remember that? In my chains, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Inasmuch as both in my chains, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. The word defense is a judicial term, is a court proceeding term. It means to speak in one's defense. To speak in one's defense. Paul is preparing to be on trial. The word confirmation, also a judicial term, meaning to establish the veracity of one's innocence. To establish the veracity, the truthfulness of your innocence. But... Look at what Paul is defending. Look at what Paul is confirming, what he's validating. He's not validating himself. He's not defending himself. What does he say he's defending? The gospel. And I I read this, and I glossed over it, and I glossed over it again, and I glossed over it again, and finally, in, in the last stages of my preparation for this sermon, I looked again and I realized... Paul is not concerned about himself. He is not concerned. In Rome, he's been been arrested now for two and a half years, at least, maybe three or four, on house arrest, unable to leave, in chains, and yet he says, I am not defending. I am not confirming or establishing the veracity of my innocence. 
It is not about me. It is about the gospel. I am here to defend and confirm the gospel. And you are partnering with me financially, Philippian church. You are partnering with me in this grand effort to take the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. I am not on trial for myself. I am on trial for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he stands trial, he says, I'm going to defend and confirm the gospel. Real powerful statement by Paul there. We need to take to heart the notion that you and I, it is plain and simple, it is not about us. It is not about us. When we exert our own rights, when we stand up and say, I'm going to defend myself at all costs. I'm going to at all costs establish my, my innocence that I am, I am speaking the truth and that someone else is speaking falsely of me. Paul says, hey, you know what? Give a little. Um, the gospel is a thousand times more important than you. Paul says, whether I die, whether I'm guilty or innocent, hey, it's of no consequence. The bottom line is, in everything I'd say and in everything I do, I want to defend and confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that be our heart's desire. Let us not exert our own rights. Let us uplift the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says at the end of uh, verse 7, he says, You are partakers with me of grace. You are partakers with me of grace. The word partaker, guess what? Koinonia, again, just a slightly different cognate. It's sug koin, excuse me, sug koino, koinonas. There we go, got it right. It's a derivative of koinonia, the word fellowship in verse 5. Paul, again, is bringing up the concept here of financial participation. Again, he's saying, you have partaken with me in God-initiated graces. God has initiated in you a grace. That grace is the good work of financial participation. And you are partaking with me. You are participating. You are participating with me in this grace. If I were to sum it up in a sentence, he's saying, you, Philippians, are participating with me in the gospel efforts. And together, we are doing our fair share to accomplish what God intends to complete through us. God-initiated graces. Uh, next slide there. Divine-initiated graces. And again, you can turn to Romans 12 and back to 1 Corinthians 8, which we looked at, to get an idea of why I'm bringing this concept out again and again. We need to recognize he's not talking about our salvation. Paul's not talking about spiritual blessings in Christ like adoption or, or salvation or sanctification. He's actually talking about divine-initiated, God-initiated works in us. He says you're participating in those things. And that's a good thing. Verse 8. Paul says this, For God is my witness. God is my witness. He appeals to God for his next statement. He says, you know that 
that I swear before God how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. He loves them. The word affection is literally the deepest part of the body in Greek. It's almost like the internal organs. Paul's saying from the deepest, deepest part of my soul. And actually he's saying the deepest part of Christ's soul. He's saying, I am longing for you. I am affectionate toward you. I am loving you. Verse 9, and this I pray. Here he comes to his prayer. Remember in verse 3, he was talking about how he was going to pray for them. Here's his prayer. And this I pray, Philippians, that your love, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. The content of Paul's prayer is that their love would abound. Love to whom? Well, Paul doesn't really specify. He leaves it kind of open-ended. He says, I want you to love. Love the Lord. Love each other. Love your enemies. And I want you to love more and more. There's always room for improvement, Paul says. This is his prayer for them, maybe indicating that there might be a little bit of a lack in their life, that they need to continue to focus on loving, loving, loving. In particular, two kinds of love he's hoping to foster. A love that is filled with knowledge. In the New Testament, this is most likely a knowledge of God. In other words, he's saying study hard. Make sure that your love is filled with a knowledge of God. Filled with an understanding of God's Word. Because how can you love if you don't understand what God calls you to love? How can you love if you do not, do not understand God's teaching? So he's saying dig in deep. Continue to grow in knowledge. Secondly, he says, I want you to have a discerning love. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, discern, discernment there. It's all, it is used, however, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in that translation, it's always in Proverbs. And in Proverbs, we know that Proverbs is a lot about making good and wise moral choices. So Paul's saying here that I want you to be discerning in your love. I want you to know what to do and what not to do. And I want you to know when to do it and when not to do it. Because I want you to be perceptive of how your love is to envelop, how your love is to develop, how your love is to be carried out. Be knowledgeable about your love. Be discerning about your love. Make wise choices. Make God-honoring choices. Verse 10, why? That you may approve. That you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Why does Paul pray this? He says in verse 10, that you may approve. Dokimazo. That you may approve the things that are excellent. This is a very famous word for Paul. Paul uses this word to refer to our being approved before Jesus Christ at the last judgment, at the, excuse me, at the Bema Seat judgment for Christians. Paul uses this word approve when he's referring in 1 Corinthians 3, 15 to you and I standing before Jesus Christ and having Jesus Christ test yours and my works and saying approved or disapproved. And disapproved doesn't mean we go to hell. It simply means that Jesus was not pleased with the works of our life. 
The scriptures are clear, especially in 1 Corinthians 3 and in other passages, that we as Christians, it's not, it, yes, it's a, it's a ticket to heaven, so to speak. A ticket into God's kingdom when we believe in Jesus Christ. But there's so much more to that. We've been looking at this in previous sermons. There is this idea that we, we're going to reign with Christ based on our works. We are going to be rewarded, given awards, crowns, based on our faithfulness. And Jesus Christ at the Bema Seed Judgment is going to say approved or not approved. That's why Paul says, study hard, make sure you're approved in Christ. A workman approved, knowing how to interpret the Word of God. Be approved. So we are to approve of making excellent choices, good choices, so that later on, Christ will approve of us. Secondly, that we would be sincere, that we would be without offense. The word sincere here has the idea of being held up to the sunlight, see if we have any spots on us. Without offense means blameless, faultless, not stumbling another. That we would be filled, excuse me, being filled. Notice the passive. Being filled. What have we been talking about this whole sermon? Divine initiated graces. God initiated works in us. God initiating financial partnership in the Philippian church. What does he say in verse 11 as he's summing up this section? He's saying being filled. He's saying God is filling you. Prepare yourself to be filled. He is filling you with fruits of righteousness. He is initiating these works in you. And we are to pay attention to those promptings. The promptings of the Spirit of God. We are to pay attention to how He's gifted us. How He's prompting our hearts and our minds. And we are to go ahead and act out. Befitting the example of Jesus Christ. Being filled, divine initiated, with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. Fruits of a moral and ethical nature produced in us through Christ. And what is this all for? So what? It's to the glory and praise of God. It's not about you, Paul says again and again. It's not about you. I don't stand trial in Rome because of me. I stand trial in Rome because of the Word of God. Because of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's all about God. It's all about bringing Him glory. Bringing Him praise. What do we make of this, uh, this lesson? What do we make of Philippians 1, 1 to 11? How can we possibly apply this to our lives today? Two things. I want to encourage us, number one, and I think this is the crux of verses 1 to 11. You and I need to be mindful and to recognize, identify, God-initiated graces in us. We need to recognize God-initiated graces in us and participate in the gospel. Participate in the gospel. Don't stand in the background. Don't walk in on a Sunday and, okay, I did my duty. I'm going to go home, flip on the television, and uh, wait till next Sunday to do my duty again. Paul says that is such the antithesis of the Christian life. He's saying, no, 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 no. Pay attention to God's promptings. If he's saying give, give. If he's saying serve, serve. If he's saying 
Teach. Teach. There are God-initiated gifts and works in us that we need to be mindful of and pay attention to. And if we act on those, God will be pleased. And in the end, we will be approved, which is what we desire. We desire to be approved by Jesus Christ. I certainly don't want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and for him to say, hey, remember all those uh, initiated graces I gave to you? Remember all those gifts, Neil? Remember all those good works and those opportunities I gave to you? Well, you squandered about 95% of them. Wow. Can you imagine receiving that comment from the Lord? Say, I gave you time and time again and you squandered and you squandered and you squandered. Not approved. Sure, you're, you're going to enjoy the, key, the eternal security with me in heaven. But your participation in the kingdom, in the millennium in particular, is going to be one in which you're going to be reminded a little bit of some of your, some of your failures here on this earth. Again, I, I urge you to take a look at 1 Corinthians 3 if you have questions about what I'm saying there. Secondly, and I think this is critical as well, I think we need to commit to memory the interpretation of Philippians 1. I would say 5 and 6, not just 6. Commit that to memory, the interpretation of that verse, because I'll tell you, you're going to get a lot of folks in your day-to-day life saying, oh yeah, he has begun a good work and you will complete it. And you'll say, well, uh, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that I've been giving financially and that God is going to make sure that gift is not in vain? Or do you mean that, you know, are they talking about salvation? You'd be surprised how this will open up a door for you to help someone along in their interpretation of the Word of God. This is a critical, critical verse, a section of Scripture to commit to memory and to memorizing the interpretation. So commit that to memory. It is not, I say again, it is not a guarantee of salvation, although we are secure in Christ. But what it is, is an assurance that the Philippians' divine-initiated financial participation in the gospel will not be in vain. And we can apply from that that our gifts will not be in vain. What you and I give in that offering plate every Sunday, God's going to work through that. He really is. He's going to multiply that gift. Recognize God's divine-initiated graces. Commit to memory. Philippians 1, 5, and 6. Remember its interpretation. And I think we'll... uh, I think this is a good start to our our book, our walk through Philippians. I encourage you to come next week for the next section in the book.